Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The clothes you buy have a big impact on the environment. Sustainable clothing is expensive. Fast fashion is extremely cheap, but terrible for the environment. So, many eco-conscious shoppers are turning to thrifting. They're looking for a way to find affordable clothing with a smaller environmental footprint. But with social media fueling haul culture, is thrifting really that eco-friendly? Welcome to In-Depth. I'm your host, Jill Webb. So what kind of led you to the thrift shop today? I have always thrift shopped. I've been on welfare my whole life. And so it's just an affordable way to shop. It's sustainable too. That's Lillian. She's 20 years old and we are at the Goodwill near Union Square. She was part of a group of shoppers who have been thrifting for decades. Most of my clothes, it's from or eBay or thrift shop. I really do not like to buy things that are new. I think you can find better pieces, cheaper prices, and you can stop the issues with retail and the fast fashion. My degree is in product design, cool. and it's just kind of really awful how much stuff gets thrown away. That's Mona. She's 34 years old, and she's not wrong about waste. In 2018, the EPA found that 85% of textiles discarded in the U.S. wound up in landfills or burned. In an effort to be more sustainable, many people choose to shop secondhand. But as the practice gains popularity, some argue the new crowd of thrifters are pushing out low-income shoppers that rely on these stores. It is something that I've kind of had a love-hate relationship. There's been like an inflation of like thrifting prices, you know, like there's like a demand for like cheap clothing and it's like here for a reason because some people literally just can't afford to like go out and like buy from other places. But at the same time, it's a very sustainable way to kind of tap into fashion. There's so much clothes in the world, we don't need any more. We don't need anything else produced. We've seen how gentrification pushes families who have lower incomes out of their homes. So it's not a stretch to say the gentrification of thrifting can push these same crowds out of affordable stores. But many young people are looking around at the devastation brought on by the climate crisis and wanting to change their personal habits, like switching from a retail-heavy wardrobe to mostly used finds. So I set out to answer the question, is it problematic for middle and upper class people to thrift or are there enough clothes to go around? Hi guys, 
It's Emma Chamberlain. Welcome That's Emma Chamberlain. She's a popular YouTuber with over 11 million subscribers. Some of the 21-year-old's most popular YouTube videos are her thrift hauls. Emma shows viewers what items she scored at local thrifts. The popularity of haul videos introduced a new demographic of shoppers to thrifting. For an evolution from four years ago, the, the main thing you've seen is the Gen Z shopper. You just heard Michael Feynman, Goodwill's regional manager for New York City, Westchester, and Long Island. While lower-income Gen Zers have always relied on secondhand shopping, now more affluent young people are also thrifting. That shopper has made thrifting the keystone of their shopping experience. It's, it's, it's quite remarkably dramatic, you know, how they've incorporated thrift shopping into their daily lives. For people like Lillian, who have consistently shopped secondhand, this can be frustrating. I actually made a tweet about this that blew up because, like, brands that we kind of wore as a kid because it was affordable, a lot of people now are like, oh my god, this is so cool. If you, like, look at, like, the upper class, yeah. they dress like poor people. There's a trend to look poor. As thrifting gets more romanticized, many forget there was once a cruel stigma attached to it. It is so infuriating because as a child I would literally get bullied. More on that later. First, a question. At what point did thrifting become cool? Historically, thrift stores are still somewhat of a new phenomenon. Trading was always a part of the barter system. But due to the amount of work put into making clothes, people used to hold on to them a lot longer. The Industrial Revolution changed that. Mass clothing production became accessible and purchasing clothing became affordable. As people started viewing their wardrobe as disposable, they began tossing out old clothes and buying new stuff. You start to see a massive uptick in the average uh, number of garments that people had. That's Jennifer Lazat. She's an assistant professor of history and material culture at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Professor Lazat says back in the day, secondhand clothing had a stigma attached to it. Wearing and selling used clothing signaled poverty and uncleanliness. In cities in the United States before kind of Salvation Army and Goodwill entered the scene in the late 19th and early 20th century, pushcart peddlers in places like Chicago and New York City would go around collecting secondhand clothing, trading or buying it and then reselling it according to their particular know-how. Middle to upper class Americans looked down upon secondhand clothing. Certainly among sort of middling class, native born white Americans, secondhand clothing was very stigmatized. It's interesting because there's kind of a spike in the stigmatization in the period right before the advent of thrift stores, so the late 19th century. Because of the general acceptance of the germ theory, people began to recognize that germs traveled along as little invisible particles and so could spread. That perspective began to shift when secondhand clothes became synonymous with charitable giving. Goodwill Industries launched in Boston in 1902, and by 1935, there were 96 Goodwill thrift stores across America. Both Salvation Army and Goodwill start to kind of rebrand their stores as Instead of social service stores, they start calling them thrift stores, which I think is an attempt to appeal both to donations and to get more people to view the wares as acceptable to buy and own and wear. They posited donations 
So they appealed to, uh, again, middling house class housewives by saying, you know, this is a way for you to get rid of still viable clothing and update your wardrobe while feeling virtuous and philanthropic about it. Around the same time, creative communities began to take an interest in thrifting. Starting in the 1920s, it starts to get cooler, hipper, more popular with certain groups like avant-garde artists who start to appropriate objects. And people like André Breton, the French father of surrealism, even writes things talking about how important places like flea markets and thrift stores are to the creative process. And I think that does start to influence fashion and dress. That was true in New York City's very own bohemian neighborhoods. Among women living in Greenwich Village before and after World War I, there was popular repurposing of clothing and remaking it. There's, but they're basically upcycling way, way before this is a term. A Greenwich Village couple was even responsible for what Lazat dubs as the invention of vintage fashion. The first time that vintage as a word gets applied to clothing, when there's this trend in 1956 and 57 for raccoon fur coats. Sue Saltzman loves to dress up in 20s style and she finds this cache of old 1920s raccoon fur coats and starts to kind of sell them. And she ends up being in a Vogue, a copy of Vogue magazine. And then mainstream stores like Lord and Taylor start to use her as a middleman to buy secondhand. And it becomes a really popular trend among Ivy League collegians for about a season until they run out of these clothings. But you start to see Lord and Taylor without quotations call these vintage coats. It's not surprising that a fashion capital like New York City has roots in the vintage space. The e-retailer Nasty Gal researched the popularity of vintage and thrift stores. It found New York to be the thriftiest state. And New York City is home to an estimated 239 thrift shops. According to a recent resale report, the secondhand industry was valued at $35 billion in 2021. But by 2026, it will be worth $82 billion. So more and more people who haven't been interested in thrifting are warming up to it. Like this Goodwill shopper. I'm not a thrift shopper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're not a thrift shopper. So what are you doing today? Um, looking for cheap cover-ups for my bathing suit. So I'm just getting some men's um, sh shirts. Why'd you choose to come here? I uh, just wanted something inexpensive. Because cover-ups sometimes cost more than your bathing suit. Would you have done this like 10, 5 years ago? Probably wouldn't have 10 years ago. Now, yeah. Mm -hmm. More cost-efficient and, you know, have kids now. Yeah. <laughs> She's not alone in changing her perspective on shopping secondhand. Research shows between 2016 and 2021, the amount of adults open to it has doubled. And now, stores like Goodwill see a range of customers from different backgrounds and income levels. Common misconception is, you know, Goodwill is for potentially less privileged or lower income. What I can tell you through my experience and, you know, my four years here, is we actually cater to everybody. You know, from those low income, but also those looking for that special treasure, you know, because treasure hunt's part of the find. And we see, you know, more frequently is we're seeing a lot of resellers mm -hmm. who are able to take advantage of great items here that are a great opening price point, And then they recycle, sell on, offer up into some other different online channels. So 
they're capitalizing off of it. They go and they buy it at Goodwill for $7, and then they'll be like, oh, look, I have this really cool vintage store, but like the same t-shirt I bought for $7 that a lower-income community could have bought, I'm buying, I'm like selling now for $50. They go into cheap thrift stores and buy in bulk. Then they upsell their finds in curated brick-and-mortar boutiques or on resale platforms like Depop or Poshmark. And they turn a profit. I think... The main thing, it really sucks to see resale culture kind of tapping into thrifting. You're taking away from lower income communities. I think it is really fun to kind of tap into your own creativity and your own fashion sense through thrifting, but benefiting off of it and kind of taking away that right from like lower income people is not cool. On the other hand, people are concerned with the amount of clothing the U.S. throws away. They support any effort to reduce waste. Especially the boutique stores, if that's getting people to reuse the items, that's fantastic. So the question is, with the amount of clothes being produced nowadays, is the growing amount of thrifters and resellers actually detrimental to low-income shoppers? And how is that changing the thrift culture in New York City? I called up Patrice Williams, an affordable style expert who runs the blog Looking Fly on a Dime. I started my fashion career working at magazines. I always knew that I loved fashion, but I wanted to just do something that felt really accessible and felt like something that the average person could learn something from it. So after getting laid off from my job at a magazine, I started my website Looking Fly on a Dime. And I really just wanted to take that experience that I had learned, and I just wanted to flip that into something that felt really accessible, of course, affordable as well. And so I shared a lot of information about thrift and vintage shopping. At the time, thrifting was a thing, but it still felt like, eh, thrifting is kind of dirty. You're wearing someone else's clothes. Like, what are you doing? Patrice would sometimes tag along with her mom to thrift stores when she was a kid. But it wasn't until college that thrifting became a passion. I was going into going to an induction ceremony and I didn't have anything to wear. I didn't have any money to like buy anything new. So I went to a thrift shop. I was able to put together an outfit for like seven or eight dollars. For me, that really gave me the motivation to say, OK, this might be my mode of shopping pretty much for for the rest of college, but maybe even for the rest of my life. Patrice has watched the secondhand space dramatically grow. She says early in her career, there was a stigma surrounding thrifting, especially in the fashion world. Editors were not feeling it. Occasionally people would mention going to consignment shops, but that was usually when they were like shopping for like really, really high end vintage pieces. I remember people who really thought that thrifting was dirty and like, that's gross. Like you're too poor to afford your own clothes. You have to buy someone else's. But now I think people wear it as like a badge of honor. Like people will just like voluntarily tell you, I got this coat for $10 from the thrift shop. A lot more people seem to be proud of the fact that they're, you know, doing something that's affordable, something that really helps them develop their personal sense of style. And of course, there's the sustainability aspect to it as well. That, of course, has increased thrift store prices. There are some thrift chains that are just like notorious for having ridiculously high prices. But I also think um, the atmosphere has kind of changed because you see a range of people in there, young people in there, people who are maybe a bit older, people of like who have like so many different styles. Whereas before it was kind of like, oh, maybe you're just going to see a poor college student in there, or maybe you see someone who maybe has more of a street style or grunge type style. Now, you'll literally find everyone. Another change? Depending on the type of shops that you go to, 
it can feel a bit competitive. Everyone wants to get their hands on something. One factor behind this is the rise of resale apps. People have been reselling clothes online since the early days of eBay. But newer apps that feel like you're scrolling on Instagram enticed a whole new audience. Depop, for example, was founded in 2011. It now has up to 140,000 new listings every day. 90% of their users are under 26. But there are key differences in the types of sellers. Most of their sellers are like me, people who list their old clothes to get some cash before donating them. I've sold Halloween costumes I probably won't need again, clothes that were brand new with tags still on, but I missed the return date, clothes that don't fit, or clothes I just don't wear anymore. It's helped me get some return on items that still have value. The other type of Depop seller is what most people call a reseller. They're making a living off the app, or at least using it as a decent side hustle. They go into inexpensive secondhand shops, buy in bulk, and upcharge items on the platform. This is an area of debate within the thrifting scene. I know some thrifters who do not like the resellers. They come in there with their massive bags and they're just like filling those bags up with thrifted clothing. And it's like, okay, of course you're not wearing all of this stuff. You're looking for specific things that you know that you can, you can post online and that you can like sell it for a much higher price. So, and that's not to say that all resellers are pushy like that, but that atmosphere has definitely changed because People aren't solely going there for, you know, to outfit their own closet. So those people just naturally kind of change the atmosphere of thrifting, but they go in and they're like really focused because it is a job for them. They're more so going in with the mindset of, hey, I know I have a financial goal of making $2,000 a month. They're hardcore. Even Patrice feels conflicted about resellers. That I started thrifting out of necessity. It wasn't a hobby for me. It was me just being like a poor student. I even acknowledge at times that there's a level of privilege that I have, that I can still choose to shop at thrift stores now that I'm no longer a student. I'm a working adult and I have money and I can buy new things, but I still choose to go the secondhand route. But I do know a lot of people who don't necessarily feel welcoming to the reseller community specifically because they do feel like, hey, you know, you're you're taking this pair of jeans and you're marking them up by three or four times. But, hey, I actually might need those jeans. So I do think there's a bit of push and pull. And as much as I think we all look to thrifting as a sustainable and maybe even eco chic option, there's tons of waste that even thrift shops produce. So I also understand the flip side of people saying, hey, well, I would rather buy it up instead of it going back into the landfills or being you know, shipped overseas in these massive bundles. A major argument from resellers is something I've been highlighting throughout this episode, the amount of thrift store clothes that end up in a landfill. Patrice has been taking that into consideration too. She recently wrote a blog about why she stopped donating all her clothes to thrift stores. I still donate to the thrift store, but I'm just more intentional about where I'm donating and what I'm donating. I think one of the big problems is that people just say, okay, it's a thrift shop, it's a secondhand store, just give them anything. And it's like, no, that's what leads to them having like a massive amount of donations and stuff that they just can't sell. So with me, it's about the intention of, okay, if I have more professional gear, maybe there's a friend that I know I can like swap some clothes with. Or if I know that there's like a professional organization or maybe even dress for success, okay, I can give them those clothes. Or if I know that there's something a bit, you know, a bit trendier, then I'll give that to the thrift shop because I know, okay, there's a higher chance that they'll actually 
be able to sell it and it's not just going to sit somewhere and taking up space. It was a big change for Patrice to stop donating. I did a major closet clean out and I got rid of about a fourth of my wardrobe. It was about like five bags, maybe six bags of clothing. I took everything to a single thrift shop. And looking back on that now, I cringe at that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wonder if they even sold half of that stuff because some of it didn't seem like it may have been necessarily the the target market for the neighborhood that it was in. If you've ever done one of these big closet cleanouts, you might be surprised with the amount of things you own but don't wear. Industry insiders say we only wear 20% of our wardrobe, but we're continuing to shop more than ever. Data shows in 2019, the average person was buying 60% more clothes than they did 15 years ago. What's worse? Those new items are kept half as long. We will be right back after this. Welcome back to In-Depth. I'm your host, Jill Webb. As more people rethink how much they're spending on clothes, they're also considering their eco-footprint. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all-star closer kenley jansen we have a question what's the best podcast of all time Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Fast fashion brands like Shein and Fashion Nova price their items notoriously low. They're usually on par with thrift store pricing. People with disposable income are becoming used to shopping low quality, fast fashion. If a top rips after wearing it once, or it's not trendy anymore, 
People just throw it away and buy another one for a couple of dollars. But that creates a ton of waste. Even though thrifting is sustainable to an extent, sometimes wealthier shoppers mimic fast fashion consumption habits, but at thrift stores. I noticed that I was thrift shopping way too much and that I was buying a bunch of stuff because I'm like, oh, this is only $2. Oh, this is only $5. And after a while, like my closet was just overflowing. And I'm like, well, why did I buy that? And I kept, I'm like, oh, I, I bought it because it was cheap. Not necessarily because I liked it, not necessarily because I was going to wear it. And I realized that I was even contributing to just this over consumer like mindset of just buy everything because you can and then don't wear it. And of course, I would end up donating it back to the thrift shop. So it just felt like this really weird cycle that I was doing and going through. But definitely over the last few years, I've become more conscious of don't buy everything if you don't need it, if you're not going to wear it, if you can't style it three, four different ways. Some people are buying so much, they're like, all right, let's jack the prices up even more, which again affects people who do need the prices to be lower. And it's just, it's just, it can become like such a weird cycle where, you know, it's like thrifting used to be the go-to for like super affordability. But depending on which shop you go to, sometimes it is just cheaper to go the fast fashion route. It's great that thrifting is more acceptable, so to speak. But I also feel like there's been like some pushback and some cons that have come along with that that we still have to like figure out somehow. It's easier to see price jacking at trendy vintage and curated thrift shops. Why does that matter? Because if thrifted clothes are not affordable for low-income shoppers, they have to turn to fast fashion, creating even more fashion waste. Ironically, in the long run, this hurts low-income shoppers most of all. We will be right back after this. Welcome back to In-Depth. I'm your host, Jill Webb. You heard Patrice, a self-proclaimed thrifting pro, who's changed the way she shops and declutters. She's not alone. Others interested in sustainability have taken a similar approach. So when I hear the argument that thrift resellers and more expensive vintage shops are taking away from low-income shoppers, it can fall flat because there are so many clothes. Bags and bags of unsellable secondhand items are getting hauled off across the world. I asked Michael, the regional manager from Goodwill, about the organization's process for handling donations. So retail stores are the first destination for consumer donations. It starts here, goes through its four-week cycle on our floor, and anything that doesn't sell within a store then goes into clearance, which goes to the outlet and is sold by the pound. Through donations, 40 million pounds do not go into a landfill. They come to us. Once it's done with the outlet, we actually, you know, we sell in bulk elsewhere, so our sustainability factor is very, very high. Goodwill, like most thrifts, does not have a lack of inventory. Across the U.S., too many clothes are being donated. I know, that sounds odd, but here's Professor Lazat. So by like 1960, there are literal tons of donated secondhand clothing that is being packaged a totally different way, either as rags or by the pound or ton and sold, as you say, to the global south. So even though some consumers, American consumers, tend to see donations as a process of like global benevolence, most researchers on the topic see there is just being far too much and a lot of it ends up in landfills. A problem that started decades ago has grown exponentially. 
In 1960, 1,710,000 tons of textiles ended up in landfills. Sounds like a lot, right? Well, in 2018, that number was 11,300,000. The issue here isn't that we're taking away cheap clothes from those in need. It's the rate at which the fashion industry manufactures clothes. This is driven by how much consumers are willing to purchase. So until we stop consuming so many new items, thrift stores will remain full. When I was in my master's program at Colorado State, I got the great opportunity to go and work for a summer up on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation here in the U.S. And it's the Lakota Sioux Reservation. That's Dr. Sidney Eisenhower, an associate professor of anthropology and climate change at the University of Maine. I remember that while I was there, I would oftentimes see big kind of like containers brought up to the reservation of donations. A lot of donations get sent to Pine Ridge without anyone asking if they want them or if they need them. They just get shipped there. And I remember one woman saying to me, you know, of course we we appreciate the assistance, but it's just so ironic that like, if we get another pair of size four designer jeans, I'm gonna scream. (laughs) Because it's like the the things that oftentimes would get sent there would be things like washing machines that didn't work or, um, you know, small appliances that had burnt out motors or, you know, designer jeans that don't really fit in the local context. Seeing these unneeded items clog up the Lakota Sioux Reservation changed the way Dr. Eisenhower thought about donations. I started to think about that as donation dumping. And I and I think that, you know, for a lot of really low-income communities where people who have the best intentions to donate and to give assistance, unfortunately, if you don't ask people what they need and you don't try to figure out, like, how can I actually help people in ways that are meaningful to them, you can oftentimes like actually exacerbate the problem. Even if people try to be charitable and sustainable by donating instead of dumping used items, there are consequences. You know, Lakota who live in this very rural place with very little community income to run any sort of waste collection program, what it ends up doing is basically trashing people's places, right? You're, we're just literally displacing our clothing and our shoes, mismatched shoes. I mean, I remember she actually showed me one of the bags that had come and it had like all these mismatched shoes in it. So it, it's, it's basically a form of, you know, kind of environmental injustice and donation dumping that um, doesn't help anyone. Americans discarded items don't just affect their communities or even their own country. A lot of the resale that happens when, say, for example, a large charitable nonprofit can't sell in a store and they get sent to this another center for like last chance sales, they oftentimes, if they aren't able to be used for rags, they'll be bailed up and sent overseas. Low-income countries end up with the most unwanted items from wealthier nations. There have been all sorts of trade disputes with countries like Rwanda and Tanzania, who have basically said, like, we can't take any more of your used clothing, U.S. <laughs> UK because really kind of strangling our domestic textiles markets. I mean, there's some really interesting studies, a couple out of Germany that show that Rwanda's textile industry, it declined at kind of the same rate that the textile exports from the US and the UK increased. So they've tried to implement some trade policies to try to reduce the flow of secondhand textiles into their countries. But the US has pushed back pretty hard, you know, putting in retaliatory tariffs and, you know, threatening any sort of preference 
access to U.S. markets. So it's been really hard for these relatively poor countries to fight against the U.S. trade policies. That being said, we shouldn't stop donating. It's about being more conscious of getting the right items in the hands of the people who need them. That might mean sorting your used items up and bringing them to various organizations that need them most. It will take more time than throwing everything together and bringing it to just one place. I really don't want to encourage people not to donate. The organizations that handle donated goods do a lot of good work, but I think, you know, before folks donate, there needs to be a lot more thought around what would you use? What, you know, could someone actually use this? And much more thought about like, how can we all use the things that we have longer? How can we repair them? How can we make sure that we're buying things that are durable. One of the first steps is understanding our purchases have a life cycle. Then we can think about where they might end up next. I always tell my students, if you want to understand the environmental impacts, all you have to do is just kind of follow the clothing. So if we think about environmental impacts, particularly for low-income people, the first thing to think about is that we're, we're seeing such a low percentage of donated clothing recycled. And part of that just has to do with kind of international markets and the availability of processing capacity. As a result, the overwhelming majority of it ends up in landfills and in incinerators, which, you know, are disproportionately cited in communities that are low income and often of color. And so we see that like the benefits that are associated with this system of consumption tend to accrue to those who are already affluent and the costs tend to accrue to those who are disadvantaged. These massive landfills are not just eyesores, they impact public health. So much of our clothing these days is made out of petroleum products. So when you incinerate them, they are quite toxic. If you're trying to recycle, that often involves processes that also have quite a bit of toxicity. And then of course, when we're talking about disposal in a landfill, there are all sorts of problems there. A lot of textiles have inputs in the process. So bleaching agents and cleaning agents that have residues in the clothing themselves. So when you bury them, those kind of toxics can also leach out. And if there's a breach in the landfill can, can infiltrate water systems too. Yikes. These aren't things most people consider when tossing out a bunch of old t-shirts. We've made a big environmental mess as consumers. It's about slowing resource loops and it's about closing resource loops. And so you can close resource loops through recycling, upstyling and, and restyling, but you can also slow resource loops. That just has to do with making sure that we're slowing down that kind of treadmill of production consumption disposal. When someone buys something at a thrift shop, I think it makes a big difference is, is are they going to keep it and use it for themselves? And are they going to keep it for a long time? Or are they moving it through a system faster and faster? Anytime we can kind of slow those resource loops by keeping things in use, that's really important. Some people that are looking at this from a life cycle perspective and, and particularly thinking about like issues like shipping, I think people are concerned that we might see rebound effects in the resale market. So if you're moving a lot of things through these resale platforms very quickly, so like you're using used goods, but you're replacing them really frequently and you're sending them you know, all over the country, there could be some rebound effects where maybe the benefits aren't as strong as if people, for example, were keeping things in their 
wardrobe longer. Let's connect back to the gentrification of thrift shops and affluent people buying up all the good thrift finds. The reseller does put their valuable labor into the process of reselling it online. And that is so much more preferable than that piece of clothing not selling and ending up either in an incinerator or landfill or being boxed up to be sent overseas. Do these stores generate enough money to give back to their community? Dr. Eisenhower told me about a postdoc, Brianne Berry, who embedded herself as a volunteer in multiple stores for a year. She was there on the sorting floor. She was there working with all the elderly women who were, you know, helping to sort the donations. And it is certainly true that, like, the proceeds that those little community thrift shops produce, they do stay local. So she was able to show that in the three thrift shops that she was working with, they were able to produce benefits for the community that were roughly equivalent to the town's recreation budget. So it, it's things like community suppers and feeding low-income families to you know building libraries and helping with educational programs. Some of the biggest changes in thrift culture are the demographics of shoppers, how much they're consuming, and what they're doing with their purchases. The good news, the next generation is thinking more about personal consumption habits. According to ThreadUp, in 2021, Gen Z was 165% more likely than boomers to consider resale value of clothing before buying. Our purchases have impact, not just now, but down the line. And this is causing shoppers to ask more questions. Is this a brand I can resell later? Will the quality on the skirt hold up after 10 washes? Will I wanna wear the shirt next year? Or will I end up donating it? If I discard it, can a thrift store easily flip it? Or can I live with it ending up in a landfill? As we continue to face climate change, these are the questions we'll be asking. For those of us who love retail therapy, it may be a big change to consider all of this. Thanks so much for listening. In Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Special thanks to audio engineer Andy Egan Thorpe. Thanks to Cooper Mall for editorial support. Femi Redwood is the managing producer of podcasts. And I'm Jill Webb. Thanks for listening. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.